Well, this week, while y'all were cheering on the Astros, I'm sorry to mention it, y'all be praying for me because I've been rooting for my team and the Braves. And we got our game seven today, hoping to knock out these Dodgers. But the crazy thing is this. Um, you know, we haven't won a World Series since 1995. We haven't, you know, made it to the World Series since 1999. We haven't won the National League pennant since 2001. And you'd think as a sort of lifelong Braves fan, I went to the, to the early 90s games at Fulton County Stadium, seen more games than I can count at Turner Field. I've even been to the new park, Truist, which is a terrible name for a baseball stadium, but Truist Park. You'd think I'd be glued to the TV for each one of these games. But I just, I've, I've started out strong a couple of times, and I get to like the fourth or fifth inning, and the stress of not knowing how it's going to end is too much. And so I just turn it off. You know, and I was a little bit that way last night for my football team, Alabama, but we pulled it out, and y'all know we're going to win again. Um, but the reality of the situation is this. Um, people are also a little nervous about an election that's coming up. People wondering what's going to happen, who's going to win. You know, depending on the news sources you read, uh, one candidate's already got it in the bag. Other sources, you know, tell you other, otherwise. And so it's hard to know what to believe. It's just, you kind of just want to turn it off and tune it out and just wake up again sometime in the distant future when everything's peaceful and pleasant. Uh, that, that tension of not knowing creates so much anxiety in us over little things like baseball games, and over big things, like what on earth is going on in the world. But in our passage today, Daniel 2, you can go ahead and start turning there, we're going to see that all that tension, all that worrying and wondering about what's going to happen should be foreign to a person who knows God. That there's actually another way to live in the world, not in anxiety and fear about the future, but with confidence that, that God is ruling and reigning, as we've already seen in the songs we've sang, the passages we've read, that God is in control. And so this morning, I, I don't, the thing around the internet right now is, I don't know who needs to hear this, but, and so I'll just say that, I don't know who needs to hear this, but you can be faithful in the fire because you know that God is establishing a kingdom that will never end. God is in control. His purpose will prevail. We saw that in week one. And today that comes clearly into focus in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this future kingdom that fills the whole earth. And so we are going to be here in Daniel chapter 2. And as we jump in, I just want to kind of set the stage for you. Said early on that we kind of are used to coming to Daniel as sort of like a piecemeal approach, little individual stories. But um, this story today begins just a couple years after Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem and takes away the Hebrew captives back to Babylon. Daniel and his friends are going through their training process of learning the literature and language of the Chaldeans, and they're being prepared to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And an interesting thing happens. Is that One night, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he calls on the wise men, of whom Daniel and his friends are one small part, and he asks them for clarity about a dream he's forgotten. And uh, you probably know the rest of the story, but let's, let's jump in here and read this, starting in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. 
Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, I don't know if you picked up on the repetition here. This came in a pattern of three. Chaldeans come to the king, and of course he asks for an impossible task. All the literature and learning of the Chaldeans had never prepared them for this. Right? I, I think the interesting thing about Nebuchadnezzar's dream is, as we're going to see in a minute, it's very foreign. None of us have probably ever dreamed a dream quite like this. But we have experienced the fog of waking up after a dream and not being able to put all the details together. You know, you remember that you saw your second grade teacher in a canoe with your mom and something happened, but you can't really piece it together, right? And so what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do is knowing that this dream held some kind of significance, he calls the wisest men he can find to come and make the dream known to him. Not just its interpretation, but the dream itself. Because of that, the story kind of plays out in a, in a comedic way. I mean, it, it obviously reveals the inadequacy of Nebuchadnezzar's enchanters, magicians, the whole cadre of people who are supposed to be wise men are totally unprepared for this. You know, it's also comedic because, you know, from the first chapter, we see Nebuchadnezzar is a really powerful man, reigning over the most significant empire the ancient world had known. He built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which was one of the ancient wonders of the world for his, his wife. I mean, this is not a nobody. He's a military, scientific powerhouse. And yet he's troubled because he can't remember a dream. A dream that was so real, he knew it bore significance for his life. And so these dream readers, these magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans, come in to try to explain it, try to help him put the pieces together. We know that you're in this fog, Lord. Tell us what the dream's all about, and we'll be sure to give you an interpretation that you're going to like. So the magicians and Chaldeans were uh, very specialized in their knowledge, and they had all kinds of books, commentaries and dictionaries 
for situations just like this. They had all kind of crazy dream books. And the sort of tactic would be that if you could look in the book and find a dream that lined up with it, like anybody out there ever dream your teeth are falling out? Yeah, okay, I've had this recurring dream. My teeth, I keep dreaming my teeth are falling out. And maybe you've done what I've done. You went online, you said, what does it mean that I keep dreaming that my teeth are falling out? You've done, you're laughing, but you've done this. These ancient Chaldeans were the same way. You know, you could find Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung's interpretation of dreams. They built their entire psychoanalytical approach on the subconscious mind, and they thought that the dreams that we have at night reveal something significant about us. For example, Carl Jung said that a person who dreams about falling is very insecure and is worried that they're going to be shown to be a fraud. So these Chaldeans would go in their books, and they'd find the dreams that matched up, and they would say, okay, a person dreamed this once before, and perhaps this is what it means. But both ancient and modern dream dictionaries and websites rely on being able to actually describe what the dream was to begin with. Nobody had ever said, hey, I had a dream. Do you mind telling it to me? That doesn't work. That's not the way dreams happen. The key to dream interpretation is knowing the dream. And since Nebuchadnezzar didn't know the dream, there was nothing the Chaldeans could do. All their ancient learning all the scientific and astrological insight they could muster was worthless for this task. They said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with man. And this conclusion, I mean, this is sort of, we landed on it at the end of it. This conclusion rings true in ways these pagan magicians could never have foreseen. And from the Babylonian perspective, the gods were distant, hidden, detached from the world. And yet, being gods, they might have had insight into what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, but the Chaldeans had no way of penetrating into that insight, had no way of uncovering what the gods knew. They were hidden. Because of that, this section of chapter 2 really lampoons all of Babylon's religious infrastructure, all the temples and wise men and magicians and priests and astrologers, and all the scientific and philosophical knowledge was totally inadequate for something as simple as interpreting a dream. You know, the reality of it is, is whether you're talking about a dream or the circumstances of our world, some of y'all are probably in the same position as the Chaldeans. I mean, what was true then is no less true now. Even though our knowledge has advanced 3,000 years worth of advancements, without God's wisdom, we're still unable to understand His work in the world. You know, people interpret the complicated problems of life in America in 2020 in so many different ways. I mean, your upbringing and your education biases you towards one interpretation of them or another. You know, some people interpret the events in terms of a human struggle, whether it's of class or politics or culture or race. Always trying to figure out who's got the power. And so you take that lens and you look at the events of our world and you say, okay, this is how we interpret it. You know, other people, I, I've thought about this, the scientifically minded person, the atheist who not only says, the gods know, but that there are no gods. 
says that there really is no meaning to 2020 at all, that it's just a, a cold, lifeless universe, and we're just at its mercy, naturally selecting one another out of existence. Right? Other people, of course, say that maybe life is a cycle. We've been through pandemics before. These things happen in life on earth. But whatever tactic you use, whether it's watching the news obsessively, tracking the daily political polls and coronavirus numbers and trends. I did that this morning. I want to know how many new cases are in Caldwell County. Provides me some comfort and relief. Helps me to think clearly about what's going on around me. Doesn't matter if you doom scroll through social media. Some of y'all do that. You go through Facebook and all the websites and you just go and go and go and get worn out. The reality is the same. None of those things are able to provide a reliable interpretation of life on earth. If you want to know what God is up to and how you fit into it, you've got to have his wisdom. It's the only solution. Chaldeans were useless, and so are we. But then there's good news, because as we continue reading, we see that God gives his wisdom to those who ask for it. I mean, after the Chaldeans are unable to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream, he actually follows through. He prepares to pull them limb from limb. And he sends out the captain of his bodyguard, a man named Arioch, and he sends him to the house where Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are living. And, you know, I assume he comes in, busts down the door, rounds up these guys, stands them out on the street curb, and says, all right, we're going. And Daniel says, okay, what are we doing here? What's happening? And he explains the situation that the, the king had a dream, was unable to be interpreted and told by the Chaldeans, and so now he's decided that all of them must die. And Daniel, quick-witted and poised under pressure, says, give me just a second. Go tell the king that I'd like a shot at interpreting this dream. And so Ariok does that. The king gives him a time. You know, okay, you can come in tomorrow, and I'm expecting to hear the dream. And at that, Daniel acts. We pick it up here in verse 12. Then Daniel went, it, oh, this is, I think, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Boom. There it is. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give you thanks and praise, for you've given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. To the Chaldeans were totally powerless. All the knowledge and dictionaries of dream interpretation were totally inadequate to describe Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But when Daniel and his friends did the simple thing of asking God for insight, he heard their prayer and answered them. You know, I think Daniel's confidence here in this situation really shows us what it means to be faithful in the fire. And his life was in this guy, Ariok's hands. You know, he, he is looking over the edge, seeing death down below. 
and he hangs all his hopes on God. You know, Daniel and his friends might have been studying in Babylon University, acquiring all this wisdom and insight, but all that didn't work out of them, their concrete belief that God came through for his people, and he alone was able to reveal hidden mysteries. The Chaldeans, they relied on their understanding, their wisdom, their education, their resources to keep up this charade of sufficiency. You know, they knew that if they didn't come through for the king, they were going to die. But Daniel and his friends, and I love this, Daniel and his friends were under no such pretense. They didn't have to fake it until they made it. They were glad to name their insufficiency before the Lord and to cast themselves completely on his mercy. Lord, you know we're about to die unless you give us this wisdom and this insight. I mean, Daniel's prayer is beautiful. It's, it's a heartbeat of a person who really knows the Lord. It praises God for who he is, right, what he's done, and who he is in Daniel's life. And two attributes come out. Daniel praises God for his wisdom and his might. See, wisdom's the key. Without wisdom, we can't see what God's doing in the world. But with wisdom, everything becomes clear. And when Daniel talks about his wisdom, what God's wisdom, he draws on this, this deep tradition in the Old Testament. We even have a group of books called the Wisdom Books, you know, which these wise men of the Old Testament are trying to look at the world from God's perspective to see how things normally work. And so we, we hang on to these proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from them, right? And all of it begins, wisdom begins with fear of the Lord, because God doesn't just possess wisdom, but he is wise. It's who he is in himself. And so when the Bible talks about wisdom, it, it's speaking of God's knowledge and, and its complete and comprehensiveness, that it pervades every area of life and then goes beyond just knowing, but actually consists in his ability to superintend and work all things according to the counsel of his will. And so when Daniel comes before the Lord asking for wisdom and insight and knowledge, what he's asking is for more of God. God, help me to know you and to know what you're doing in these circumstances. I mean, Daniel's prayer acknowledges that God knows what's hiding in the deep. Now, I love those science shows. They send those robotic submarines to search the depths of the ocean. They take wonderful pictures of animals and fish that are so bizarre so creepy. Those are the things of nightmares. God knows all those. He knows what's dwelling in the darkness. It's like what he told Samuel. Man judges on the outward appearance, but God knows the heart. It's what the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and nothing is hidden from his sight, but everything and everyone is laid bare before him. God has this wisdom that sees into the deepest, most hidden things. He knows the beginning and the end. He has a comprehensive knowledge of everything. And so when people like me and you and like Daniel find ourselves in really difficult circumstances, when we're trying to make sense of life here on earth, who do we think we are that we might find and penetrate into the hidden things without God? But of course, Daniel and his friends knew that God was able to give them wisdom, to give them insight, to understand the changing of the times and seasons, the removing of kings and setting up of kings, the giving of wisdom 
and knowledge. This morning, the reason you can't make sense of your life, the reason we can't make sense of our world, is because we've gotten out of the habit of asking God for wisdom. Our natural inclination, the ruts that we have created for ourselves, lead us towards other sources of knowledge and not in Him. But Daniel shows us that there's no hope for understanding without consulting God. And what's amazing is that the Bible tells us that God has not hidden His wisdom in the heavens. Chaldeans were wrong on that point. That God's revealed His wisdom for all to see. Psalm 104 talks about the way that God demonstrates His wisdom in His wonderful works. We can see His wisdom in the way things are made. The orderliness of creation. That's what Daniel's talking about. He's talking about the changing of seasons. That there's a wonderful beauty to God's wisdom in the way He works in our world. But He especially reveals His wisdom in relationship to people. You ever think back on your life and think about where you were 18 months ago, 24 months ago? You ever look back in old journals? And see what things were weighing you down. What you were praying for. That seemed like God had put a fog over the path in front of you. That you didn't know what he was doing in your world. That you wanted to see where he was leading. You wanted to know his will for your life. The moment you're sort of desperate. I've been there. I've been desperate. God, what are you doing in my life? And then you, you make it through. The light at the end of the tunnel shows up. And you get on the other side. And then you look back. And you see how the random things of your life, the moments that are insignificant when you're living through them, the things that are causing you so much heartache and headache, were actually what God was using to bring you to the point where he wanted you to be. That's the wisdom of God. That when we're trying to understand how the random events of our world function, we trust him. That he's working in them. But God's wisdom's demonstrated most clearly in Jesus. You know, the Bible tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, Jesus, to be born of a woman and take on human flesh to live a sinless and perfect life. You know that when people saw him, heard his teaching, saw his miracles, the question they asked each other, Mark chapter 6, verse 2, what is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, Joseph's son? Isn't that that little snot-nosed kid that we used to chase after in the streets of Nazareth? Where did he get this wisdom from? Prophet Isaiah looks through the midst of time and says that the Messiah will come in the spirit of wisdom and understanding. See, in his wisdom, God chose to send Jesus in the form of a man because it magnified his wisdom. How could God do anything good with somebody at a Nazareth? How could God save his people and establish a kingdom through the weakness of the cross? And yet, the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Not through the foolishness of the message of the cross, God demonstrates his wisdom to the world. You see, the wisdom is key to everything, 
to understanding what God is doing in our lives. Y'all, y'all know what I mean? What are you doing, God, in 2020? What are you doing in our country? What are you doing in our world? We have conjectures. We have ideas. We have hopes, dreams. But if we really want to know, we have to have the wisdom that only God can give. But he does give it. James says in James 1.5 that God gives wisdom to those who ask, and he gives generously without reproach. So this morning, I mean, this is key to look to God for his wisdom. And when we do, we'll see that God's wisdom brings clarity to the circumstances of our world. See, after Daniel received insight and offered up this prayer to God, he runs to the captain of the bodyguard and he says, listen, tell the king that I'm ready to tell him his dream and to interpret its meaning. And so he brings Daniel into the presence of the king and Daniel acknowledges first and foremost that, Lord, king, listen, this isn't for me. There's a God in heaven who sent you this dream so that you might know what's going to happen in the end. And he has given me wisdom and insight to understand it. And here I am before you. I'm just the messenger relaying the message from God. And so Daniel tells him this dream. You know, you know this dream probably. Daniel says in 2.31, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, a big statue. This statue, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, whether they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the earth, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Y'all still with me? Good. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, 
and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. That's a lot. But don't miss the forest for the trees. Daniel correctly described the contents of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he understood its meaning and relate it to him. You know, we read this, and, and we get caught up in the kingdoms, right? There are four successive kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar's the head of gold, and then some kingdom's going to arise after him. It's going to be ruling over the whole earth, but somehow it's going to be inferior. It's going to be made of silver, and then a third kingdom made of bronze, and then a fourth kingdom of iron mixed with clay. We get caught up on that. What kingdoms are those? And uh, we're not going to uh, dive into the details today. We're going to come back after Christmas and look at seven, chapter 7 through 12. And this pattern of four kingdoms recurs in chapter 7, 8, and 10 through 12. And so we are going to get into it. And in a minute, I'm going to tell you what I think those kingdoms are. But the real point is what Daniel drives home for Nebuchadnezzar. That the interpretation of the dream didn't rest on Daniel. But there's a great God in heaven who's made this known to you. God makes known the meaning. With wisdom, we have clarity about the events of our world. And, and I want to just think about two elements of this clarity quickly as we're closing. The first is how God's wisdom brings clarity about his authority over human kingdoms. You know, the first thing that Daniel's insight into Nebuchadnezzar his dream really, really shows is that God is over it all. There are, of course, four kingdoms, right? Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And though there were kingdoms before Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, um, Nebuchadnezzar's father was an official in what we call the Neo-Assyrian Empire, Nabu-Palasar, and he led a rebellion against his emperor, and he won. And so he established the Babylonian Empire. I mean, there were kingdoms before Nebuchadnezzar, but here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is most important because he is the one who conquered God's people. And every kingdom that followed him would also involve the ruling over God's people. And so what you see is this zooming in of human history onto four successive kingdoms with Nebuchadnezzar as the head. But the important thing is that Nebuchadnezzar's rule didn't rest on his power or on his might any more than Daniel's insight into the dream rested on his knowledge or understanding. Daniel 2.37, the God of heaven had given the kingdom, the power, and the might and glory to him. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was amazing. I mean, awesome. If you could have seen it in the ancient world, you would have just been astounded by all that he had accomplished. But when God determined that its time was up, another kingdom was going to follow in its place and another kingdom after that, and another kingdom after that. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure his, his goal, his idea was to set up a dynasty that would last forever, an empire that would never end. And this dream that caused him so much trouble was confirmation that his worst fears were going to be realized, that his offspring wouldn't rule over an everlasting kingdom, that eventually everything he built would turn to dust. It's what Jesus told Pontius Pilate in John 19. You would have no authority at all unless it had been given to you from above. 
It's what Paul told the Romans in Romans 13, living under the shadow of empire. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, with God's wisdom, we can see his authority over human kingdoms. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in the presidential election. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the presidential election. We don't have insight or foresight to be able to tell you the significance of if this person wins, what will that do for my retirement account? You know, I wish I could tell you that. We'd be millionaires together. But I don't know. Not nobody knows. But I do know this, that the Lord laughs at every king, president, and people who view themselves as a permanent fixture on the world stage. Every last one of them. You know, I hope it doesn't happen in our lifetime, but one day America will be a footnote in the history of mankind, a blip on the timeline of world history. When God says it's up, it's up. Same is true for all the other little kingdoms that you and I build, our businesses, our families, every last one of them that takes preeminent significance in our life as if it is the ultimate reality that we all bow down and worship. Every last one of them is destined for failure by design. And even now, Jesus is exercising an authority that's greater than any president or Supreme Court justice or emperor or anyone ever could. In the passage that Mike read earlier, we saw that he is exalted over all rule and authority. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1.21 that all rule and authority and power and dominion has been subjected to him, and he's been given a name that's above every name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Listen, rely on your own prognostications about the election. Figure it out. Go for it. But if you look with God's wisdom, you'll see he's in control. He's in authority overall. But the second thing that God's wisdom helps us piece together in the events of our world also comes through in this dream. That God's wisdom helps us to see his authority over the goal of human history. We can see what God is doing in the world. You know, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we get this succession of four kingdoms, which is the Babylonian, I believe Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't have foreseen all that those following empires would accomplish and what those kingdoms would do. He couldn't see into the future to... I don't know, observe some kind of trajectory. We sometimes talk about the arc of history, right? Or the right side of history. You know, none of us really knows where the world is going, right? None of us can figure out what's going to happen in three weeks. None of us knows what's going to happen in three years. But God does. He says, in the days of the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and stand forever. God has a goal for human history, a destination that you and I and all people are bound for. It's immovable. God's had it set since before the beginning of time. He knows where we're going. Remember his intimate, detailed knowledge of all things, the deep and secret things. He says that I know the end from the beginning. So God has a goal in mind for history, and it plays out in the Bible. We see it 
how, with the hindsight of, you know, historical perspective, we can see how God did a wonderful thing in calling Abraham and in protecting his children and offspring and descendants and how God brought them out of Egypt and established for them a kingdom and how, yeah, they were scattered in the exile, but that took the knowledge of God all across the face of the earth. And then, Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. The fullness of time. The time was right. didn't happen by happenstance, but it happened in a specific moment for a specific reason. Because in the time of the fourth kingdom, during the Roman Empire, God was going to send his son Jesus, a stone not cut out by human hands, a stone the builders rejected, but became the chief cornerstone, the stone that over, over which people stumble and break into pieces, and on whom it falls, and they're shattered into dust. The rock hewn from the mountain was none other than Jesus, the one who came to establish a kingdom that never ends. And he, he said it in his first sermon. After John the Baptist had been preaching and then was arrested, Jesus came preaching. He said, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I mean, everywhere he went, he proclaimed this gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming that God's rule was already present. He was already available to those who had the eyes to see and the ears to hear, to those who'd be willing to abandon everything for it. He taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He told them in Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all their needs would be met. So the kingdom of God is the destination for human history. Everything else shatters before it. That is the goal. The place where God rules and reigns. Where the apostle John sees it. Because they won't need a temple. They won't need a son. The glory of God will be the light in their midst. God will be with them. He'll be their God, and they will be his people forever and ever and ever. That is the goal of human history. Now, rely on your own wisdom, your own knowledge. You got your best guess, and that's it. But if you're willing, like Daniel, to acknowledge your insufficiency and to cast yourself completely on the mercy of God. And say, Lord, if you don't help me understand what you're doing in the mess of my life and in our country, but I'm lost. I got nothing. So you've hidden it away from me with no clue. But Lord, help me to understand. Help me to know what you're doing in my life. When that happens, you'll be like Nebuchadnezzar. You know, after Daniel announces this interpretation is sure, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and he praises God. He says, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. You know, maybe this morning you need to be honest with yourself. So that you think you knew what God was doing. You think you knew what he was calling you to. You think you knew what was going to be the best route for success in life. Like those Chaldeans, you've been operating on your own strength and wisdom. There's a way that seems right to a person, but it's in his death. You know what I'm talking about? That maybe that's where you are. And in this moment, as we see kingdoms, both national and personal, crumbling, the chaos of 2020, maybe the Lord is trying to gently get your attention to remind you that without his wisdom, You'll never be able to understand what he's doing in your life or world.
But he stands ready and willing to give wisdom generously to those who ask. And if you'll take him up on his offer, and in just a minute, get down here at the altar or in the quiet place of your own heart, say, Lord, I'm lost and confused. I don't know what to make of all this. Will you give me wisdom? Will you help me to see where your hand is active in my life? Will you help me to trust that things aren't running off the rails, that you have a purpose and goal for human history, that you are sovereign and authoritative over every human king and system? Lord, would you help me to believe that you are here with me and for me? I believe you'll find that he'll come through on his promise. That everything won't make sense all at once but you'll know what you need to do today. He'll light the path directly in front of you to take one step in wisdom and understanding. And if you take that one step, he'll follow it with the next step. And he'll follow it with the next step. And he'll follow it with the next step. And 18 months from now, you'll look back and think, man, I was in such a dark place in 2020, so confused about God, what God wanted from me, about what he was doing in my life. But now I see that he was there all along, bringing me to the place he wanted me to be. Do you need that today? I believe, I believe you do. And so as our band comes and prepares to lead us in this last song, I want to challenge you to just take a moment and pause. to acknowledge with Daniel and his friends your insufficiency, your need for the mercy of God, and ask him for his wisdom. Let's do that now. Will you pray with me?